Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Not What You Thought You Knew, a brand new podcast series from History. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, it's the early 19th century, and we're in Dorset on the southwest coast of England. Huge, ancient-looking crocodiles and otherworldly marine reptiles rear out of a crowded sea, snapping and snarling at each other, while a pterosaur, those huge winged bat-like beasts, wheel and dips in the sky. We're looking at Duria Antiquior, or a much more ancient Dorset, as painted by the geologist Henry de la Beche. His famous watercolour, created in 1830, gives us a violent and surprising view of the beaches of Lyme Regis, And for the people who saw it, Delabesh's depiction of ancient Dorset changed their life because Regency England was being stalked by a new danger, ancient reptiles. Prehistoric animals that included pterosaurs, mosasaurs, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs and, of course, dinosaurs. But how we discovered them and what they mean to us today might not be the story you think you know. And that, of course, is what this podcast is all about. In each episode of Not What You Thought You Knew, we'll be exploring some astonishing historical characters to reveal not just their incredible stories, but also why their lives are so important. This is the history you should have been taught in school. And in this episode, we've dug up the exceptional Mary Anning. It's from her discoveries of the fossils of Lyme Regis that Delabesh created his famous painting. And even though she was a well-known celebrity in her day, history has somewhat struggled to remember her. Later in this episode, I'll be speaking to the excellent Dr. Rebecca Higgett about the lesser-known side of Mary Anning, her dice with death as a baby, the family belief that she was going to be special, and touch on how 19th century England responded to this groundbreaking Dorset woman. But opening the episode, we'll be meeting a modern-day Anning, a paleontologist who spends her time scrabbling around rocks and digging up fossils from the Arctic permafrost. My first guest is Dr. Aubrey Roberts, a paleontologist in the Department of Biology and Biochemistry at the University of Bath, and she is a researcher of Mesozoic marine reptiles. Thank you so much for joining me today, Aubrey. Can you tell me, what is paleontology? So paleontology is the study of fossils or the history of life. So from when life first started to quite recently, really. 
that's an incredible amount of time to be piecing apart. Yes, yeah, uh, just over 500 million years, so or <laughs> closer to 600. So it's quite a long time. <laughs> and for someone who is a complete novice like me, I mean, I'm a historian of the 18th and 19th centuries, so my documents are all paper and photographs and early film. What is it that you get to work with? So I work on fossils, which are either casts or um, fossilised bones, so bones that have been changed uh, and infilled with rock over time, from animals that became extinct millions of years ago. When I was very little, my dad used to take me fossiling in Folkestone. There's a wonderful beach there. And so my idea of, of finding fossils is that you were scrabbling around on a beach and you might knock over a bit of chalk. I think your version of that is probably a lot more professional. Well, a lot of it is scrabbling around on the ground, so that much <laughs> hasn't changed. <laughs> so um, I work in... Well, my particular field is marine reptiles from the Arctic. So I usually end up going to the Arctic on proper expeditions where we stay out there for a couple of weeks and dig and dig and dig and see what we, we find and bring home. But obviously there are lots of, of ways you can find fossils just by walking along a beach, like you said. So hang on, you go to the Arctic. That must mean you are digging through layers of ice to... Are you, are you staying in the ice or are you getting down to rock? So we only go up there in the summer, so in August, when the permafrost has melted. Permafrost is, is ground that is frozen all year round. So the top layer sort of thaws a bit during the summer and we only have a really short weather window, about two weeks, when it has sort of melted the most. So that's when we go up there. But it's quite often that we actually hit the uh, the, per the proper frozen ground after a while. And it can be quite difficult to dig then. <laughs> I bet. Now, are you in the Arctic because this is the best place to find the fossils that you specialise in? Or is it that it's it's one of many? So it is one of many. There are, there are quite a few brilliant places worldwide to find marine reptiles. Uh, some of them are right on our doorstep, like, for example, Lyme Regis uh, or uh, places along the south coast of England or in Germany. But the Arctic is very special because it hasn't really been explored much before. And uh, there's lots of new interesting species up there that we, uh, we are finding. So it's a very interesting place to work. Also, there's no vegetation. So that's kind of handy. Why is that handy? Well, because... When you're like looking for fossils, it can be a bit annoying having all of that grass in the way. You can't really find the things that you're after. So if it's just bare rock, it does get a lot easier. These marine reptiles that you are, you are studying, is this something that's always been a passion for you? Or did you come to it through training to be a paleontologist? So a bit of both. So as a child, I was always super fascinated with fossils and dinosaurs and paleontology from probably about the age of two. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't really realise that it was possible to become a paleontologist until I actually went to university, where I actually met my uh, previous supervisor, and uh, he introduced me to, to the real world of paleontology. So that's how I sort of got into the whole marine reptiles um, aspect of paleontology, was because he introduced it to me. 
So when we're talking marine, fossilised marine reptiles, are we talking about things that could maybe fit into a 50p coin or huge things that are, would take over the entrance hall of the Natural History Museum? So not that big, but still they can get pretty big. Um, so the animals that I have worked on are usually between, I mean, there are many different species and they're all different sizes, anything from a metre to like nearly 15 metres long. Wow. So there's massive size differences in the different species. So what sort of species are they? Can you give me a, a kind of a, a visual description of what those fossils might look like for someone who can't see them right in front of them? Yes. So the first group that I work on are called the ichthyosaurs. Now, they look a little bit like fat dolphins with fish tails, but they are <laughs> actually reptiles. <laughs> They've got pretty big eyes as well. So it's, they're quite an interesting group to work on. And we don't have anything alive today apart from dolphins that sort of look a bit like them. Uh, the other group that I work on are plesiosaurs. Now, these are animals that are kind of hard to imagine. But if you think of something with four flippers, something like a turtle body, but with a giant long neck attached to it and a tiny head, that is a plesiosaur. Some people call them like the Loch Ness monsters, just to try and imagine what it would look like. So you you found your love of paleontology as a, as a discipline and as a student and a researcher when you went to university. How did women begin to become involved in the field of paleontology? So women have surprisingly enough been involved in paleontology since the earliest days of the field for example people like Mary Anning one of the 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 sort of main I would say founders at least of UK paleontology as she found some of the first um, large fossils in the country. Who was Mary Anning can you tell me a little bit about her? So Mary Anning um who was born in 1799 and died in 1847. She was um, a daughter of a cabinet maker. She was poor. She lived in Lyme Regis and didn't have sort of great prospects, didn't really go to school. Um, but her father taught her a love of, of fossils and actually selling these fossils to tourists that would come to Lyme Regis itself. And uh, over time, she developed this passion and she actually, along with her brother, found the first ichthyosaur fossil. And this ichthyosaur was kind of mind blowing for a lot of the scientists at the time because it was something that they hadn't seen before. They thought it was a weird crocodile, but they didn't really understand that there were sort of animals that lived before that became extinct it, they were just basically just starting to work this out and piece these pieces of the puzzle together and she was one of the drivers of this and found a lot of these really important fossils along the Dorset coast. So Mary Anning is discovering all these fossils is she also categorizing them and keeping notes of them? Oh yeah she took loads of notes her drawings are absolutely spectacular and she actually prepared all of these fossils herself. Now, fossil preparation is very hard. Like when you remove a fossil from rock, it's it's still in the rock, right? You've got to take it out of the rock and piece it back together. And this process can be very, very time consuming, taking hundreds of hours. And when you're working on something that you don't know the anatomy of because it's an animal you haven't seen before, it's really difficult. And Mary Anning wasn't taught really how to do this, apart from some of the knowledge she got from her father. Um, 
but she she learned herself she taught herself anatomy she uh, really sort of pushed to try and, and and do a great job on on the fossils that she collected and they're absolutely beautiful so she certainly did so as a, a collector and a finder and a cataloger of fossils what was her impact on this new emerging field of paleontology oh she certainly had a huge impact on paleontology in the fact that not only was she a sort of a, a working class woman who who collected all of these fossils and was so knowledgeable about them, it was a bit of a shock to a lot of these um, sort of gentleman scientists <laughs> that a woman of her standing could be able to to know so much. And they were quite so. And some of them were very pleasantly surprised. So she had quite a few close friends along these gentlemen, um, and her impact through them was pretty huge. They published a lot of work based on what she had done and some of her ideas unfortunately she didn't get her name of those on those of course um but in the early days she did have a big impact in just the amount of fossils that she collected and she awoke the public's interest in these fossils as well through the the animals that she she had brought to the museums is there anywhere where members of the public can go and see these spectacular finds of hers So a lot of the UK larger museums have Mary Anning specimens and some of the smaller ones as well. Uh, Obviously, quite a lot of the collection are at the Natural History Museum in London, but there are specimens in Oxford and I think in Cambridge and some of the other museums like Cardiff Museum as well. So there are quite a few spread around the UK. I think there is possibly a, a growing knowledge of Mary Anning's name today. We are starting to see people starting to know that she existed and she had this huge impact. And coming out soon next year is a, a story of her life, a film starring Kate Winslet. And its depiction, its take on Mary Anning is to actually present her as a lesbian. Now, that's something that historians who have worked on her are adamant is completely incorrect. Do you think that playing with this history of the first real female paleontologist should should be allowed that much dramatic license or is it something that really should be kept to telling a truthful account i mean that's quite a hard question to answer i mean personally i think it would be a lot nicer to see a film that was more about her contributions and work that she did and the struggle that she actually had um sort of to to break through into the scientific community i think that would be far more interesting and dramatic story to tell, to be honest. This presentation of Mary Anning as, has taken a severe amount of dramatic licence does take away from that excitement of a woman in a field that we might perceive to be dominated by men. As a female paleontologist working today, is it still the same or do you think there is better representation? There's definitely better representation in the field today, but there's still a lot of um, sort of work that needs to be going forward in terms of diversity in paleontology, for sure. Not only sort of gender equality, but also um, other sort of aspects of diversity as well. Well, this is something we see across the board with academia until we have universal diversity we are missing important voices from from all fields yes i certainly agree with that 
I love hearing about this incredible woman. Mary Anning is entirely self-taught. She's a working class woman and her authority is desired and needed by the men who wrote the founding papers in this new field of paleontology. I think it's really important to remember that at this time, women were actually barred from achieving academic qualifications. They might have been allowed to attend a few lectures, but they were not allowed to graduate with a degree or a qualification that they could then use in a field like this. So Mary Anning, without any real power or any privilege, is achieving something that some men would have thought impossible, being an expert. And Aubrey's right, we need to focus on her achievements and her discoveries. I've worked as a consultant for great dramas, and I know dramatic licence is a really important part of making great TV and film. But as a historian of culture, and especially as someone who's looked at how we've treated LGBTQ histories, I was so annoyed to discover Ammonite invented this lesbian relationship for Anning. Because... In our history, we have a wealth of records from lesbian women themselves, and those are the stories that deserve to be brought out of the archives, not invented just because someone mistakenly thought fossils might not be exciting enough. So let's put Mary Anning in context. My next guest, Dr Rebecca Higgett, is a historian of science and senior lecturer at the Centre for the History of the Sciences at the University of Kent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. Um, I'm really fascinated to find out your knowledge and more about this amazing life of Mary Anning. She's someone who seems to have really been a founder of in her field. Can you tell me a little more about her? Well, she um, was born clearly in the right place and the right moment. Um, so being born in a cottage that was near the sea um, at Lyme Regis, where, um, as we know, there are amazing fossils to be found um, at the right time to come of age, just as the science of geology was coming of age, and that there were gentlemen collectors who were interested in buying fossils and in beginning to describe them in scientific ways, certainly gave her an amazing opportunity for someone who was female, who was working class um, from the provinces. She has become amazingly well-known in her own lifetime and um, is sort of famous again today. Were there any social restrictions against Mary Anning becoming a paleontologist or, or conducting her work? Because it wasn't, was it a specific term at the time or was she called something else? Well, she was um, a, a businesswoman. She was a vendor um, of fossils. So she probably wouldn't have seen herself um, as a geologist or a paleontologist. Uh, although she certainly believed that she had uh, and indeed did have um, very good knowledge that she could share with uh, men of science. But that's not the kind of role, essentially, that um, she had or would have been um, understood to have. And of course, it's important to remember that all scientific work relies on a whole host of skills that don't just include those people who we might sort of acknowledge as being um, the leading kind of scientific figures. So there are always have been illustrators and printers and collectors um, and um, technicians and so on who um, tend to have been left out of the official kind of record um, of scientific discovery or uh, advance. Uh, but historians have become more and more interested in trying to um, find them in other parts of the archive in um, uh, correspondence um, in diaries and so on. It is this kind of unacknowledged labour of, of women towards the furthering the fields of science and medicine and literature and art that we are starting to 
see becoming more present in our understanding of the archives? Uh, absolutely. And um, I should say not just um, women, I mean, uh, working class people more generally. So nowadays, we've all heard of Mary Annie because there has been a, a huge focus on trying women in history and particularly perhaps women who've contributed to science. But we've rather less tend to have heard of her brother, Joseph Anning. I don't think he's a, um, a name on sort of people's lips, um, but he was the one who worked with her, as indeed um, her father and her mother have been part of this business um, too, her mother indeed leading the business for many years. Um, and Joseph uh, Anning is an example of a, a working class man who made uh, one of the sort of early important discoveries, um, just as others say quarry men um, were managing to find fossils or strata um, in, in quarries and passing that information on or sharing it amongst themselves. Uh, and we don't tend to have heard of them either. Is this sort of a, a failure of our, our history or our communication of our history? Because certainly growing up as a, as a historian, I, I was fascinated by Mary Anning and I viewed her, perhaps wrongly from what you're telling me, as very much uh, you know, a solo star alone. And to to hear from you that her mother was involved, that her brother was involved, it seems that through trying to promote this knowledge that we have, that a woman was was incredibly influential in, in the founding of paleontology, we've almost abandoned all the people who supported her. I think that's right. I think, I mean, partly it's difficult to just keep a handle on, you know, the sheer numbers that do exist in networks. They're much harder stories to to tell. I think it's very important to just think about connections and support that people had and people very rarely do work alone. And we've done a lot to sort of, you know, point out um, that's the case for sort of the leading figures, the, the, the lone genius figures don't exist. They they absolutely are always um, in, in networks and have um, support uh, of, you know, all sorts. What's interesting is that we've had, um, in sort of trying to reject some of the hero figures, we tend to make alternative heroes, and those are the easy stories um, to get. So Isaac Newton, hero figure, lots of people kind of leap on uh, Robert Hooke as someone who was not as well known, perhaps, um, to history. I think he is very well known now, but someone who's seen as being you know, slightly um, lower class, who has different kinds of objections. So you get that kind of Flip side, I think a similar example is Neville Maskelyne, astronomer all, got kind of painted as a villain in the process of trying to make a hero out of John Harrison, who was um, from the provinces, who was a, a clockmaker rather than a Cambridge-educated mathematician and so on. Um, so we, we get these. And I think um, women in science, very much um, that's happened too. So sort of Ada Lovelace and, and Mary Anning become these uh, figures who, you know, just as much as the men previously have been sort of, you know, pushed up as these kind of heroic mythologized figures. But I think one of the really interesting things about Mary Anning is that she's been mythologized all her life, um, which is which is fascinating. I mean, even when she was a child in her own locality, there were stories about her um, because her sister, she's named after a sister who died in a fire um, and there was something of that that was connected to her in the way stories were told about her early on. And then the fact that she was a survivor of a lightning strike and there was a group sheltering under a elm tree. And um, they all died apart from Mary Anning, the storyteller, oh in 1800. So she's, she's under two, I think. Um, and, and that, you know, sort of marks her out as special. And there are stories suggesting that she became intelligent at that stage, which quite how you work that out <laughs> for someone who's you know, um, 14 or 70 or whatever months old that she was, um, that suddenly she becomes an intelligent child <laughs> at that moment. Um, but but those mythologies have circulated about her. And then 
she became a figure of interest and curiosity. She was visited as much as Lyme and, and the fossils were visited sort of in the 1820s and 30s when she um, you know, clearly had become sort of the most senior figure in the business, uh, the family business. So this, that's just incredible. This really is kind of the an early form of celebrity in many ways. And do you think she was aware of that and, and maybe monetizing it? Oh, yes, very definitely. Um, she, she seems to have been a good businesswoman and a good publicist. Um, she was, from what we can tell from what she says to other people, you know, very sure of her own knowledge and her ability and, you know, that she knows more than the so, so-called experts. Um, there's a lovely account in... Um, the diary of someone who comes so one of the people who comes to to visit her um is the king of saxony um and he's traveling i think it's his surgeon is keeps a diary of this and he talks about how they they visited her and he sort of took down her autograph and um she tells them i am very well known throughout the whole of europe um, so, <laughs> you know she, she clearly you know it doesn't undersell herself but i think she she was clearly did draw people to her I think um, both men and women who visited her I mean some you know were a bit snobbish or some were you know just found her odd or a curiosity or didn't like women who talked too much or you know whatever it was but generally I think you get the impression that she she was clearly very clever and and witty and, and those who warmed to her enjoyed her company. So do you think she deserves, she deserved in the period, the fame and celebration she was managing to create? Or is she actually not this unique woman that we we remember her to be today? Was she one of many? I think she she was, I mean, because of, um, you know, her, her place that she lived, the, the timing, her ability to find make really important finds so she is working with her family um but a lot of the major discoveries clearly are hers and she's also seems to be particularly good at you know working out the the whole of the remains and then essentially kind of building them up into something making sense of what's there and setting them out and she's able to draw them um very well and talking of this sort of um ability to market herself there's um one of the discoveries she makes is um fossilized squid ink so there's ink inside um the the sort of you know fossilized stone ink but it can be turned back into ink and she uses that ink to make drawings of some of the fossils other fossils <laughs> that she finds so they they feel like you know they're sort of you know appropriately rendered um with old materials and that you know she can sell and, and make make drawings of but but she has the skill to uh, make those drawings she has the confidence to be corresponding with people uh, and to be to be selling her finds she is clearly supported by um other gentlemen men of science through her career as well um you know the, at an early point the family are really in difficulties when um the father dies in 1810 they are almost destitute and on, on sort of parish support for a number of years um despite you know making finds there isn't perhaps yet sufficient market for them or fame for them as collectors, um, you know, for others to trust them and purchase them. And it's by um, another collector um, making, so he he gets a lot of, there's a man called um, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, who um, buys quite a lot of things off the family and then realises in around 1819 that they're in, you know, really difficult circumstances and are about to sell off their furniture. And um, he at that point sells his collection, much of which they collected, for their benefit. Um, 
and that sale attracts a lot of interest and publicity and makes something over £400 for them as a family, which is you know, a significant amount for a, for a working class family. So he is sort of one example of someone who, who comes in and, and sort of helps establish their reputation and, and so on for, for the sort of scientific and, and world at large. What were her personal relationships like? Because we talk a lot about Mary Anning as as this incredible early early paleontologist and the incredible gift that she's given us in in this this collection of her fossils and and what she's shown. But was she someone who married and had children, or did she do what many of our dramatic heroes and heroines have done which is to really be a, a lone wolf who gives themselves to their their passions and their their pursuit of knowledge she didn't get married um which is one of the reasons why there's always been speculations and fictionalizations of, of what um her relationships with, with other people were she clearly was a family person she clearly had close um relations and uh, relationships and sort of uh, communications with some of the people that she made friends with in terms of collecting you know she showed them around and then after that there might be a a sort of correspondence um, after that or she'd see them repeatedly when they came to visit but there I think that the sort of speculations about her her love life um, which you know it's the kind of thing that only happens to female figures generally um, when we look through history I mean if it were, were a man the question would probably barely arise but um, there was one so I mentioned Birch as someone who sort of helped the family at a crucial period and there's one other collector who sent a letter to someone else about him saying in a sort of pointed underlined way Miss Anning attends him as if that was a kind of speculation. <laughs> yes, um, yes, that's you know, great nineteenth century code. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so there, there was perhaps suspicion then, because you know someone was showing her such interest, or the, or the family. But but she often clearly sort of you know rises above the others in terms of who gets talked about or who gets recognised. So that was one speculation. There are also fictional accounts um, that speculate on, on whether she had a relationship with Henry Dillabesh, um, who was um, one of the leading geologists of the period and, and got to know Anning very well indeed, and they, they spent plenty of time together. I think that's just, you know, there's no evidence for it. They clearly got on. He was a, a friend of hers. He After she died, he wrote a very lovely obituary about her that was published in the Journal of the Geological Society. Um, but, you know, th- there's nothing beyond that. It's pure sort of fantasy and, and um, wishful thinking. Uh, and then, of course, there's been the recent film, um, Ammonite, which speculates on a possible lesbian relationship. Yes. Um, now, of course, this is... Have had. This is the time of Anne Lister, whose di- whose coded diaries were recently um, dramatised, and we know that lesbian culture and lesbian life was present in England at this time. But this new film, Ammonite, that stars Kate Winslet, is one that does seem to take an angle on Mary Anning's history that is not supported. Whilst we may ask questions about male lovers, the idea that perhaps she was lesbian or a gay woman or a bisexual woman is one that I think there has been quite a, a backlash from those who have worked on her life. Yes, I mean, I think because it is pure speculation. Um, but, you know, it, I suppose saying that she had a relationship with Delabash is, is just the same. Um, and, and, you know, I think the filmmakers have said it's it's fictional and, and why not? We, we know that she <laughs> certainly, you know, did have close friendships um, with, with other women. Um, so I, I suppose it 
you know, it, it depends on what you feel historical films are, are there for and what, what they're meant to do. Are they meant to be sort of, you know, clear, accurate records, in which case it would be very difficult to give a real sense of, of Anning herself. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, it's not clearly the kind of thing that people would be speculating at the time, there was, I think, one account of her that said she kind of looked quite masculine. Um, certainly she was, you know, outdoors in a way that, um, you know, women might not have been, I mean, sort of, you know, striding across beaches and doing dangerous things, um, which, again, you know, could be seen perhaps as, as suggesting that she she's a certain kind of personality. But, you know, beyond beyond that, it's, it's I think, a testament to what, kinds of stories we want for our own times it is very much now i i specialize in on sexual culture in the 18th and 19th centuries and to be described as masculine is absolute co you know it's one of those red flags for right. a historian of me who's like oh my god they're definitely saying this this <laughs> they're definitely hinting and whether or not it's true or or malicious in a way that some people maybe the author felt it was unseemly for a woman to do so makes the accusation that it's masculine behavior is fascinating mm. and I think you know this is yeah. the time of women to us to our modern day ideas of women seeming to jump out of the coded feminine world you know this is the time of Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein of Mary Anning and soon to be Ada Lovelace people who have made huge contributions to fields of literature art and science and yet for some reason history absolutely believes that they are completely unique as if these are you know amazing women doing unfeminine things but mm. when we start to add them up an awful lot of women are doing these things are fascinated by science are writing about science oh yeah absolutely yeah um, it's something like geology very much was a, a, because it was a new science it hadn't yet got its you know sort of trappings in place although you know you get the geological society being founded and women are not allowed to be fellows of that until the 20th century um it's still sort of new enough that there are opportunities for women to um and as i was saying working class people as well to to contribute um and and there are a number around you know sometimes their their wives you've got charlotte murkison who's someone who um anning knows and she's the, the person she stays with the one time she goes um, to london and i think is the is the individual who's behind um the portrayal in the film of of the love interest I'm, I'm not quite sure I think it may be a sort of um amalgam of, of one or two different um, individuals um but yeah there were there were clearly lots of women who who came to Anning who were interested themselves in being collectors so women who were um, didn't need to work for a living but but had leisure and interest to develop um you know this new scientific field do you think what we need to actually do is to move on from these histories of women almost as great men of alone solo kind of people trying desperately to carve out a name as a woman to seeing them much more in context as many women were interested we just haven't talked about them absolutely i mean i you see people in context is obviously what the history wants to, <laughs> to do um and i and i do i always have a, a problem when you get um you know lovelace or anning and or some of her you know there's only a handful of them uh, marie curie gets sort of you know lifted up as these great female scientific figures and it is it is usually a very um you know mythologized kind of story that that lacks 
you know, all sense of what they could or couldn't do. So in some ways, it may lack sort of a real sense of, of what they did that was extraordinary. Um, the fact that we've heard of them today does make them different than the many people that, that we haven't heard of, um, but equally doesn't look at what made it possible for them, in fact, which is probably, you know, a huge amount of support and context. So for um, Lovelace, we tend to forget that she was an aristocrat and had plenty of money. You know, that gave her opportunities that um, others wouldn't have had. Um, Anning has her real moment, but she clearly has her family around. There are, there are other women. Um, she And also just the fact that she, um, I suppose, looking at these lives, what is useful is it points out, you know, what else you need um, to make um, science continue the fact that you need people who collect things the fact that you need people who um, communicate things beyond the scholarly world so um, you know the women who write or teach um, you need um, illustrations to accompany texts and again that was often something that women or you know, members of the family did um, alongside um, their menfolk and so on so the more that you tell these stories the more we should be able to notice what is needed, um, what the sort of larger pool of talent um, out there is, and, and the fact that science takes all sorts of people in order to um, contribute to it. You, you need all of those um, different kinds of skills, I think. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So is it really that when we're talking about Mary Anning and her legacy, it's not just in the field of paleontology and the founding of that science, but also in the in the founding of the field of scientific communication and, and teaching. And really, is it a case that Marianne's legacy is, is well, you? <laughs> um, I think you, you made that point about, you know, her being a sort of early celebrity. And I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. The fact that she was heard about um, beyond, um, you know, the immediate locality or beyond London is fascinating. And it tells us about all those interconnections um, in in the world of science and, and it not just being the scientific figures, but clearly, you know, individuals beyond that who were hearing um, and were interested. And she was a really, really important figure for, for Lyme Regis itself um, because they ended up kind of depending on her celebrity. When she died, they were genuinely 
sad that they had lost their kind of you know tourist attraction um not not just you know the fossils and there were other people and obviously still today you can go and buy fossils and shops and lime but um it was Marianne herself who was really really important in bringing um you know people um an interest into um their vicinity at a time of you know depression in, in in other sort of areas one of the things that annoys me about much of our history is the belief that women simply weren't part of it especially not in such a serious field as scientific research. In making this podcast, my view of Mary Anning has changed and inspired me to do some digging of my own about one of the myths that surrounds her. She sells seashells by the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. Anning is commonly believed to be the inspiration for this well-known little verse, but by heading into the newspaper archive, we find that that is not true at all. The rhyme first appears in 1908 as a new comic song in the Christmas pantomime Robinson Crusoe. Now, this was part of musical tradition that fun rhymes would be recited and repeated after the performance, and very popular with audiences of the time. It's something that we see in this amazing kind of call and response of the pantomime stage, and it really bonds an audience and performers together. What's fascinating, though, is that this isn't actually the first appearance of She Sells Seashells in our popular culture. That first line was often used by wives to test how drunk their husbands were, and we see it reported in our popular press in the 1890s as being from America. It's this American test. I've even found reports of Leeds police using the same test on drunk drivers in the 1930s. But rather than finishing with me eroding a small part of Anning's monster legacy, I want to leave you with a question that I asked Aubrey. So what does Mary Anning mean to you? So for me personally, I grew up with stories that my mum would tell me about Mary Anning and sort of how she was always found sort of fossils along the the seafront, along the beach. And I remember going to my um, to my family's place near in Seaford, near Brighton, and looking along the beaches there for fossils and not finding much and not really understanding why. Um, <laughs> but for me, Mary has always sort of been a part of my life, more so now that I am a paleontologist and I've studied her specimens and she's sort of always now a sort of a close part of my life in that sort of way. And her specimens are truly amazing and we are very lucky to have had her um, in the UK to have found these fossils and that they are preserved. An inspiring answer there from Aubrey for young paleontologists everywhere. And if you want to know more about Mary Anning herself, head to the Natural History Museum in London or the Lyme Regis Museum in Dorset, where you can also find guides to fossil walks along that incredible coast. And don't forget Ammonite, starring Kate Winslet as our amazing Mary Anning, is released next year. That's it from us for this episode. A big thank you to my guests, Dr. Aubrey Roberts and Dr. Rebecca Higgett. Please head to history.co.uk to find out more about Not What You Thought You Knew. And if you want more episodes from us, please rate and review the series on your podcast app. It's a massive help. 
And while you're at it, search for History UK or Fern Riddell on social media and tweet us with hashtag NotWhatYouThought. We'd love to hear your suggestions for topics for future episodes. Because if it's left up to me, we'll end up with a series based solely on the Victorians or the history of sex. And while I think that's great, I'm pretty sure you guys have questions about the people from our past as well. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, and our series producer is Sam Pearson. Okay. Am I doing the whole thing? Okay, we can do this. She sells seashells by the seashore. (laughs) Oh God, this might take us a few goes. She sells seashells by the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she She sells seashells by the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells by the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. Okay. She sells seashells by the seashore. The sell... Oh Oh my God. Does anyone else want to do this? We can always have a different voice, not just mine. She sells seashells by the seashore. The shells she sells. It's, it's, it's actually really hard. She sells seashells by the seashore. The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. How many was that? Three or four? <laughs> Bloody hell. All right, okay. Thanks. Are we are we happy with that? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.